0: is for everybody is a podcast that tackles the sometimes difficult conversations around prison abolition i'm crystal
1: and i'm graham this season is about the media's involvement in carceral or abolitionist thinking
0: how it uses narratives to impact radicalize and shift culture
1: just a reminder friends though the title of this episode may give you some warning remember that harm itself tends to create situations of alternate
0: harms there will likely be other painful topics brought up too take care of you Welcome to another episode of Abolitionists for Everybody. Before we begin, we wanted to mention that Graham could not join us for today's episode. But don't worry, you will hear plenty of Graham in the future. And instead, we have one of our old co-hosts, Rob, who will be joining us today. With that being said, we can get started. Yeah. Uh,
2: thanks, Crystal. Uh, today, we'll be talking about propaganda and law enforcement in the media. We have a very special guest with us here today, Lewis Wallace. Lewis, can you please introduce yourself to us and maybe tell us a little bit about propaganda, like what it is?
1: Sure. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, my name is Lewis Wallace. I am the Abolition Journalism Fellow at Interrupting Criminalization, which is a, an organization that does research and organizing run by Miriam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie. And Copaganda, I actually just remembered this morning when I was writing about how we used to read this book called Make Way for Ducklings Mm
2: -hmm.
1: when I was a little kid. And the cops would come, you know, I love ducks and I love ducklings. And I did when I was little too. And the police officer would come and help the ducklings cross the street in that book. (laughs) And that to me is such a good example of the kinds of pervasive cultural propaganda about what police do and who they are and what that institution is for that starts when we're young and kind of permeates through popular culture and also news media. And news media is kind of the part of it that I'm working on.
2: That's very insightful. I haven't thought about that book in years. That was one of my favorites. Uh, but. You're right. I mean, it shows up in so many of our children's stories in general, and uh, I think so. I guess to to can we make it as simple as possible? Like, uh, what propaganda would be? Maybe I don't know. Do you have a, a stab at making it as as simplified as as possible? Like, how would you explain it to a kid reading?
1: Mm. Yeah, I would say it's like like to a kid. Well, I would start by not reading that book to a kid, even <laughs> though I love that book, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but I actually have had this experience with, with kids who sort of say, what are police, You know, what are they for and why? And I think that the way propaganda kind of operates is that a lot of little kids in this country are told they're not all little kids, but a lot are told they're here to keep you safe they catch bad guys right and that's kind of where this whole idea starts of like there are good guys and bad guys in the world and then what we as a society do to deal with the quote-unquote bad guys is call the police policing 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 and there's so much imagery of police like doing good things that they don't actually do like helping ducklings across <laughs> the <grave>. street. <laughs> and like saving little kids from abduction and you know stuff like that that um i think really gets under gets under people's skin and gets this idea out there that the main thing the main roles of police are safety um and protection when actually the main roles of police are violence and social control and you know police are actively causing harm but we're told that they're protecting and i think that plays out like all the journalists who are writing stories about quote unquote crime and policing now, like probably haven't gone back and kind of done the work to think Mm -hmm. about what messages did I receive when I was reading Make Way for Ducklings or watching, you know, cop shows on TV that come out as assumptions in the ways that the stories are written. Like right now, we're dealing with a really, really widespread assumption that more police equals less violent crime. So the police advocacy groups and quote unquote unions and fraternal orders are coming out saying, oh, look, crime, crime, bad guys, bad guys. Um, And so we need more money, but there's no proof, there's no evidence at all that, more money into and more numbers of police has any relationship to reducing violent crime. And yet they're not even asked to prove that because the propaganda assumptions are so strong that propaganda has been so effective that people just assume that that's true, that that's what police do.
0: Thank you for that. That was really helpful. I had never heard of propaganda until a few weeks ago when I attended the Don't Be a Propagandist" event. And I come from a neighborhood that is very, very heavily policed and everyone around me was always getting arrested. Um, My whole neighborhood has been incarcerated at some point or is incarcerated now, uh, including my brother. And the very first time that I kind of experienced propaganda was when my brother was incarcerated, when he was incarcerated himself along with 30 other people. Were arrested that same day. And I remember seeing all of the news articles that were coming out and what the media was saying on TV. And they put all 30 people's um, mugshots for everybody to see. Actually, my sister found out about my brother's incarceration because she was studying at the university. through a friend because a friend saw the mugshot on TV and she texted her hey did you see your brother you know is on TV and was arrested and I remember just being so shocked at the things that they were saying about these individuals that I knew growing up and just how untrue a lot of those statements were and they were using very heavy words like criminals and violence and this and that. And then ever since then, I I was more careful because I fell into I fell into it too. Whenever I saw a news article, you know, I got scared. I thought the cops were the answer. But then when that happened, I kind of made a promise to myself to be more careful from now on whenever I see and read stories. Um, so do you have uh, any tips for myself or for our listeners on what to look for when they're reading a news article or when they're watching TV and how to catch just like these intentional things that they're doing to make us believe that the cops are safety and they are the, the people to protect us?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really sorry that happened to your brother. And I'm also glad that you raised that example because it's such a clear one of like how propaganda really depends on dehumanizing the people that police are arresting and the people whose lives they are ruining. And so I think there's a couple really clear ones to look out for, like that you just mentioned, like mugshots, (laughs) publishing Mm -hmm. mugshots is really for the benefit of the news outlets who kind of encourage criminalization and abuse by doing that. And then for the benefit of the police who basically say, look what we do, we catch quote unquote bad guys. Even though, as we know, mugshots are just a picture of someone who's been arrested, not convicted of anything. Anyone Mm -hmm. can get a mugshot that gets picked up for something, you know? So, and then there's all the language that comes along with that, like criminals, felons, violent criminals, Another one that I've, I noticed that I feel really sensitive to is like news articles will identify people as males or females. Like there were three males arrested at three females. Like um, that's very dehumanizing where like, if they yeah. were talking about politicians or rich people, they would say like three men <laughs> um, or three women.
0: I never caught that.
1: And then also obviously There's like the potential for transphobia there too of like you're characterizing people based on their legal sex that you have gathered from a police report or whatever. So you don't know how those people identify either. And all of that is contributing to dehumanizing people. Like um, for some reason, a group of people who've been arrested is a group of males instead of a group of men or boys. So that's one to look out for. I think even legalistic terms like suspect and defendant, journalists often use those thinking that they're just being fair, you know, so um, because suspect suggests, oh, the person hasn't been convicted. But I've seen it used a lot in really insidious ways, like somebody who has just been killed by police will be referred to as a suspect because the police are saying, oh, we thought had a gun or we thought she was running from you know something or whatever and um news articles will kind of unchecked call that person a suspect when in fact someone else has just killed someone and it was a police officer um so you'll also notice that like people who are arrested will be named and the shots and all that cops when they do something like shoot someone or beat someone up they're granted anonymity the articles come out without them being named and that anonymity isn't always coming from the journalists. Sometimes that's the usually that's the police organization, the department protecting their folks. But journalists and journalism participates in that, right? By like, um requiring that everyone be named involved in the story, except for the police officer who killed someone. And I think journalists should be fussing over that more, right? Like we're people who it's our job to get information and spread it around, you know, fairly. And I think we should be making a really big fuss over how secretive police departments are while at the same time they're willing to give you pictures, names and whole history of people that they want to appear as criminals so that they can appear as good guys who stopped the criminals. I think a lot of crime reporting doesn't need to happen. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Like in the way that it happens, I I think I would be especially attentive to like trend stories like homicides are up or like you know dangerous neighborhood like there was a whole series in the Atlanta Journal Constitution about how dangerous certain parts of Atlanta are recently and you know those kind of trend stories i don't i don't think they're serving the individuals who are directly affected because you know if you feel unsafe in your home you don't need to read it in the news um and but it's telling other people like oh this is a criminal area or these are criminal or criminalized people and justifying policing and abuse Uh, And I think a lot of like rising crime, rising homicide, rising violence stories primarily serve that purpose. And they often are actually in response to police press releases and not in response to communities saying like, hey, we have a specific concern here that we want reported on. At the same time, that doesn't mean that violence and harm should never be the subject of news reporting, but being really attentive to like what the lens is, is the lens what the police are doing, their statistics, which are often bent out of shape to make them look good. Or is that storytelling and the desire for storytelling coming from the community that's saying, here are things that could um, help us or make our community safer? And usually it's the first one.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Something that always strikes me about like the whole concept of propaganda is that like they they don't need our help cops already have so much money and so much power and immunity. So, you know, when you were giving that example about like the neighborhoods versus this other thing, I'm like, there's already this huge discrepancy between these two communities. There's this cop community and this neighborhood community and to err on the side of the person with more power, more money and immunity. It's, um, I know, you know, which is in my brain, kind of a, a concept of just like the ability to Squeak your way out of any accountability. it's it's just interesting that that lends that way. and thank you for giving like specific examples of like how you employ that in your work. And one thing, I guess on that concept of accountability, one thing that I know in this space that a lot of people struggle with is uh, like accountability for ops does does that play into your understanding of propaganda at all? like do you have a Personally, like an idea of what that looks like for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that Mariam Kaba, especially, and and Andrea have been really, Andrea Ritchie, who just put out the book No More Police, Mm -hmm. have been really courageous in naming how actually propaganda can come out in the form of, oh, we need to hold this person accountable who is a cop. Mm -hmm. And the assumption is that what accountability would mean is, arrest, a trial, conviction, incarceration. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with them that that narrative, while it may be like powerful in terms of the immediate tools of power that we have available to us as organizers, it's detrimental in terms of our narrative about what accountability actually looks like because we can't transform our society and culture toward an abolitionist vision without actually uh, changing how we understand accountability. And part of that, I think, is actually believing that it's possible to stop cycles of violence. And we know that arrest, conviction, incarceration do not stop cycles of violence. They continue them and worsen them. And so when we come out calling, you know, and often this is in solidarity with families and victims, like come out calling for the arrest and conviction of killer cops, it totally makes sense where that feeling and that desire comes from. And I would never speak out and say like, oh, this person who has lost a family member shouldn't be asking for this. But I'm also aware that the way that that gets covered and talked about, and sometimes the way our movements takes it up, to reinforces the idea that fundamentally the system works. That you know, guilty people get arrested, convicted, and incarcerated. Innocent people go free. What we need is to just get the right people, including the cops, and then the whole thing will keep functioning and will work well. So, you know, that's a that's I think a question that's at the tension between reform and abolition, like, is reform possible? And what reforms are, you know, have abolitionist potential and those kind of tense, complicated questions. But in terms of the messaging and the propaganda, I actually think it really, really benefits the police and their message to occasionally arrest a quote unquote killer cop and charge and convict and incarcerate that person because then they can say look the system works when there's really a real bad guy you know even a cop we get him
2: yeah I love that we started this with uh, make way for dunklings and kids because I, I think my brain is like copaganda is so much like the messaging of cops so much is that hard line between good guys and bad guys and that's something we learned so early on like you are good or you are bad and there's no even when describing like other children in schools, you know, it's like, well, that's a bad kid in school. And she's a good kid in school. And they're, you know, and abolition is kind of just mushing that around a little bit more and (laughs) reminding people that we're all humans. But it's a really it's there's a lot of cognitive like dissonance in in a brain, you know, to, to deal with things like that. Like I'm formerly incarcerated. And when people meet me, I think it's, I think it's difficult. Like I, I can see in their body, it's difficult for them to reconcile that they're talking to someone who did time, who has multiple felonies. And it's just like, oh, it's almost a visible response, you know, where they kind of like, how do I process this? Because she's supposed to be a bad guy, but I think I like right. her. So is she a good guy? <laughs> I don't know where this goes. And yeah, exactly. To your point with the cop thing, it it serves them to further that line, you know, to say that this was a bad guy. So pushing it here on this very clear and easily divisible line. And it just happens in such sneaky ways. Every time I listen to things like this, I'm like, oh yeah, there's that too.
1: (laughs) Totally. Like I think about this all the time with, and Scalawag magazine does a lot of really great work on propaganda and popular culture. And our work has been more about propaganda in the news, you know, news media, but, um, on the pop culture front, like serial killer stuff like all the true crime stuff all the serial killer stuff you know it's about the worst of the worst like things that people do to each other and all the things that when you're like we need to abolish the police people are like but what about this tiny tiny ridiculously tiny percentage of things that happen in the world that is serial killers what do we do with them and uh, that becomes the focus as if like 99.99 percent of what the cops are doing isn't like harassing people, responding to animal control calls, you know, pulling people over for having a tail light out, picking up small amounts of marijuana out of people's jacket pocket and so on, Um, which is, you know, as we know that that's almost entirely what cops do is all that stuff. Um, But if to look at the TV, you would think what cops are doing is going around like investigating, doing detective work about serial killers,
2: <laughs> you know,
1: and, um, or about like the worst of the worst things that can happen. And that, you know, that shit is scary. I'm not saying like that it's not real to, um, harbor that kind of fear of violence, but I think it's also, uh, evidence of the culture that we live in and of how dominant the policing narrative is in our culture. Another example that Miriam and Andrea give in their book in No More Police that's really, really good is about the book Lord of the Flies Mm -hmm. that a lot of people are assigned to read in middle school, high school. I think I read it when I was a little kid and y'all are nodding. It's like about these little kids who get left on an island and then what plays out is that they basically all turn on each other and they're, you know, without chaos, adult supervision, it's chaos and it's all it's it's about the deep evil that exists in all of us, even children, and the horrible things that we would do to each other if we were just left, you know, in this anarchistic environment. Okay. And um Andrea Ritchie has really made the point to me and a number of times that I've heard her speaking publicly too about how like everybody being made to read that book is such a propaganda narrative. It's like giving us this idea from very young that what we fundamentally are as humans is non-cooperative, punishing, punitive, and probably possibly evil people who will turn on each other. When in fact, we have lots of evidence from throughout human history and across many different cultures that the main thing people do when they're in that sort of desert island situation is cooperate and help each other right. and figure out collective responses and ways to work. Um, but that's not the required reading. The required reading is like Lord of the Flies. And I think that too says a lot about our culture. And then, you know, that that's sort of then reflected in narratives about everything, you know, narratives about corporations, narratives about prisons, like this idea that we're that the main thing that we do is compete with each other and destroy each other has a really deep psychological effect that then ends up reinforcing oh what we need is like armed officers to control that when in fact you know there are all these examples of cooperation that are less likely to be covered whether it's like prison hunger strikes and acts of solidarity that get covered so much less um all the organizing that we do in our communities, you know, you hardly ever hear about the unbelievable levels of cooperation that happen in community and mutual aid that happens in community. Um, But you're very likely to hear about like the serial killer, the serial rapist, the stranger danger stories.
2: Yeah, definitely. People ask me all the time about um, how dangerous it was for the officers or how endangered I felt in prison and um and most of the danger I felt in prison came from the correctional officers and I last season we had a few a few people who did time around the same time and one who 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 was down at the same time as me and it's funny when we talk about our experiences it's like well that was the day she made me tea this was us folding twigs together to make a wigwam we sewed a quilt, we helped this, she taught me how to cross stitch, you know, <laughs> it's like these small, because that's really what happens when, um, when you put a bunch of people together is, uh, yes, of course, there's always a percentage of of chaos. But a lot of that is prompted by that structure of punitive uh, management, you know, um, in, in the spaces where there were no correctional officers overseeing it, there was peace. And I find that very similarly, on the outs, you know, out here, it's, um, in the communities that are over-policed, there's always a little bit more chaos and in the community. And I I think we get the causation mixed up a little bit. And those percentages bother me as well because we never apply that to uh, regular parts of our life. Like no one says, oh, you're just gonna open a soda can like that. What if it explodes in your face? And it's like, sure that happens, but I'm going to go ahead and just open the can and we're going to, we're going to go with what's incredibly more likely. And we're going to focus on that. No one's like, oh, that bowl is inefficient. What if it spills? Like we've all had those experiences, but we do <laughs> not need to redesign everything, you know, let's focus on designing it for what happens the majority of the time. And I think with the criminal system as it is, the storytelling of what happens the majority of the time is just so false that we're solving for this we're solving for the soda exploding in your face. And it just seems so bizarre some days.
0: No, it's fine. That's very insightful. I think one of the things that always, when I talk about propaganda and hearing you all talk, one of the things that never fails to shock me is how intentional everything is by the cops like once in a while, arresting a bad guy. I recently learned that a cop, like a few cops kneeling or walking with protesters during the George Floyd protests is like an intentional tactic that they use. And that always kind of like surprises me that they actually go and do that strategically. Because for a really long time, I was that person that was like, oh, they didn't know that three strikes was gonna, you know, do this. Didn't know that enhancements were going to do this. And then I learned that it's also intentional. Uh so every time I hear about propaganda and hearing you give mm-hmm. specific examples, um, kind of scary.
1: Yeah, it is kind of scary. And I feel like it, yeah, it, it has helped me with my analysis of propaganda to really think about police as um as an organization, almost like as a corporation. You know, corporations have an agenda of profit they have branding they have to some extent a political agenda I mean the police are a little more complicated because I think they're a political organization and a corporation and they're armed you know um but they have branding right it's like the blue the thin blue line and blue lives matter it's recognizable everywhere you know what it is and they have messaging and they have political power that's very organized and uh, I think that helps me with like staying alert to where propaganda shows up Too is understanding that there are people who are, like you just said, actively th- thinking about how to promote the positive image of this group that's very, very well-funded and causing a lot of harm. And the reason that they have to promote the positive image is because of just how much harm they're causing. Um, but then you hear about these things that are supposedly benign, like there to keep kids off drugs, like- we had a cop coming into my school when i was in elementary school and with a teddy bear and you know talking to us about abstinence <laughs> from drugs and that's powerful propaganda like that's incredible thinking on their part of like how to get you know hearts and minds um <laughs> and get into the schools and convince people that like they're keeping people safe and of course now we know that abstinence Is a horrible way to help people avoid addiction (laughs) and the harm surrounding addiction. So that's one thing. Lots of evidence around that. And then, of course, the irony being that what the cops are then going to do if you're not abstinent is arrest you, which doesn't help anyone get off (laughs) drugs. And so they've, but they've created this whole opposite day like mindset that that's what's going to happen. That. A, abstinence from drugs is, is the way, and that B, when that doesn't happen, that some kind of um, police based enforcement is helpful. And they have TV shows and they have news articles and they have all the things supporting that idea. But to think about what their how they benefit and profit from that, not as individuals, but as essentially a powerful political slash corporate organization, you know, that they've they have this massive membership that gets more jobs, more benefits, more pension from advocating for their usefulness and then they also function as henchmen for corporate interests and so they I think they have a lot of self-interested support from that end too. So then when it shows up in news reporting it might seem benign but it's actually coming from a place of a lot of very organized and intentional power.
0: So aside from paying attention, you know, to everything you just said in this episode, is there anything else that we can do? Like I'm I'm not a journalist, I'm not a writer, unfortunately, but as somebody who is like on social media and who is system impacted and has a lot of people in my community who does buy into police our safety and don't realize that they're consuming this propaganda is there anything that I or the listeners can do uh, in order to, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know if I should say like fix this, but at least like, you know, put a little pebble uh, <laughs> towards helping uh, with abolition.
1: Absolutely. So there's like the, so I'll talk about the uh, pushing back stuff and then I'll talk about the building stuff because I think there's a lot that people can do on both fronts. So we have this guide called don't be a propagandist. <laughs> that is for journalists um, that we made for journalists and news reporters, but we also really want activists and community members to um, find it and use it and give it to journalists because it, it has like a pretty simple breakdown of here are the things you can look for that are propaganda. you know, repeating police narratives unchecked, using passive language like officer-involved shooting or died at the hands of police um, to describe police violence, publishing quote-unquote crime statistics unquestioned, fear-mongering, criminalizing language like we talked about, publishing mugshots. So all of that is in there with explanations that are geared toward journalists because you know I understand what journalists' job is it's complicated, it's hard, you're under time pressure, but there are these things that you might not notice that are, you know, reinforcing this propaganda. So use the guide, spread the guide around, tell people about it. I really, really, really believe super, super strongly in local community members and activists contacting and pressuring your local media around this stuff. You would think that they get like complaints all the time or people coming at them all the time and that's true to some extent but honestly when I worked in I worked in local public radio um, for several years and uh, when we got a complaint any kind of complaint it was actually taken quite seriously, and so when like racist jerks would complain. It was like, Hey, yeah, yeah. You know that we wouldn't take seriously, but I wish that like the anti-racist people would call in more (laughs) and complain because we would talk about it, you know, like we, and I was on that side in the newsroom, like wishing that people would like call and be like, this is propaganda bullshit. So that's me coming from being, having been inside, you know, to outside, but I think we have more power than we realize over the narratives that come out in our local media, like I think campaigns to stop publishing mugshots, campaigns to uh, shift the frame around all this propaganda stuff that come from community can be very, very powerful ways. Whether or not they move the journalism institutions, they will move individual journalists who, uh, many of whom wanna be accurate and wanna be accountable to community. Not all, but some. So just like not underestimating the power that we have as members of communities to make a fuss when our local media isn't serving us, especially public media, nonprofit institutions, um, that kind of stuff, corporate media and TV is a little harder. Um, But it's all just people doing things, you know, and so I think those, those moments of pushing back With individual reporters and individual cases of propaganda can be actually be really powerful. So that's another one. And then on the side of like, what can we build together? I think there's been something really powerful for me about reading Miriam and Andrea's book, No More Police, and thinking about stuff like Lord of the Flies that I internalized when I was really young, or the Make Way for Ducklings story. And really using those kind of awakening moments to provoke imagination and open my own mind about what are the ways that we actually can be living and have been living on this planet and could be living right now, not just in utopian faraway future, but right now that aren't based on the assumption that we're all here to punish and harm each other, or that everyone is either good or evil. And really releasing those things, constantly checking and releasing those things in myself, for me is like an opening and a passageway into the side of abolition that's about what are we here to build together. And I think the the fundamental building block is strong, supportive, community not necessarily safe community because you can't make safety be real but you can respond to violence and harm in transformative ways that make safety more likely next time and so really focusing on like what do we do in those moments where something really harmful is happening and does happen how do we show up for each other What does that look like? And sometimes that harm is at the hands of police or at the hands of a landlord, sometimes it's at the hands of a family member or a boss. And how we show up in solidarity matters so much, I think, to like retracking our own minds and retracking our own visions to kind of understand what a police-free world can be and has been and will be. Uh, And often is right now in the present, you know, we deal with crisis and harm all the time outside of systems of policing and show up for each other in incredible ways. So another thing for anybody who's doing narrative work of any kind, reporting, journalism, podcasting, the work y'all are doing is so amazing and important in this way, like telling the community stories that might seem small, but are actually huge about just all the ways that we show up for each other you know, like my neighbors and I calling each other when our animals get out, I have potbelly pigs, which is like funny. Cause I've like pigs against policing is the name of the organization that lives in my backyard. But anyway, they, sometimes they get out and, but it's like small things like that. It's not, you know, these aren't, this isn't serial killer stuff. It's just like, Oh, it's actually really easy to have a network Of people that you know that live around you that call each other when your animals get out and then actually telling those stories like sharing those anecdotes about cooperation and communication and sort of say you know where I live that's probably 10 percent of the police budget right there animal calls just cut it out (laughs) that we could defund that part right now based on the neighborhood network That we have going. So that's just one example. Um, but I think that sharing those stories, those hopeful stories is a really, really important part of countering um police narratives. And we do this work all the time of building relationship and building networks and showing up for each other and mutual aid and solidarity and feeding each other and bailing people out and you know, all of the things. And so um just like turning our lens away from what the cops want us to believe about how necessary they are.
0: I really appreciate you talking about the importance of community and having a pod and, you know, kind of ending the episode on a hopeful note, um, because I know that when I think about propaganda and just like how I've consumed it my whole life and just now in my late 20s realizing this um, and like how much it's affected our communities um can feel you know like we'll never get past it but I really really appreciate you ending us on a hopeful note Um, and before we go is there anything that you're working on that you like our listeners to you know plug into or you know keep an eye out I know after hearing you talk I've learned so much and I know listeners will be excited to learn like what else what else you're up to
1: Yeah, so I have these office hours, which is really fun. People can go to our website at Interrupting Criminalization and uh, find me on there and and come to office hours to just talk about abolition and journalism. Anyone who has questions, thoughts, want to just shoot the shit, uh, I'm here for that. And that's the main, that's the big ongoing thing. And then we're, you know, we're going to be putting out more materials, um, about the so-called war on drugs and propaganda and looking also at some of the uh, international implications and how this sort of pro-cop, pro-military framing of the war on drugs um, has justified U.S. imperialism around the world. And uh, so look out for those resources and other, you know, trainings and events coming up. My big thing is working with people who are right at the intersection of abolition and journalism. So whether you're an abolitionist getting into journalism or a journalist getting into abolition, I'm here to support those transitions and bridgings.
0: <laughs> I love that because listeners say all the time that they wish they were in the room to talk about these topics. So go talk to Lewis <laughs> during their office hours. That's really exciting. I think I'm going to stop by too. <laughs> amazing yeah it's been
1: super fun so far I love meeting and talking to people and just hearing yeah hearing what people are thinking about and I feel like you know relationships are the fundamental unit of all the movement building so um, having that time with each other is like so precious to me
0: You've been listening to Abolitionist for Everybody. Be sure to follow us at Abolitionist underscore on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for regular updates.
1: If you want to continue to support this podcast and our work overall, you can donate to support Initiate Justice at initiatejustice.org slash donate.